Welcome to the Mother of All Movement podcast with me, Catherine Meadows. I'm a Pilates teacher specializing in postnatal recovery and a mum to two kids myself. The aim of this podcast is to inspire and educate through chats with women who are either working through their own movement journey or work to help women get stronger and recover both physically and mentally after having kids. I want to talk about what they do, how they integrate it into their family lives and essentially why. Because I believe when we share our stories and our values, we lift each other up, enabling every mother to fulfill her body's potential, gain confidence in her power and give our families the best version of us to share their lives with. So join me each week to hear these wonderful women talk about their journey. In this week's podcast, I am chatting to Tori James, who is an adventurer, business consultant and motivational speaker, and now mum to Max, who is two. Uh, She's also featured in one of my daughter's favourite new books, Fantastic Female Adventurers, which uh, is a really brilliant book. I'll give a link to it in the show notes. It's sort of along the lines of the uh, rebel, uh, stories for rebel girls and women in science and women in sports books, uh, all about real women who've done amazing things and uh, really inspiring and also beautiful illustrations. So, so it's a really good one. And Tori is in that. Uh, so, Tori, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for talking, taking the time to talk to me today in your few hours while you've got childcare. <laughs> thanks thanks for inviting me no problem can you take a few minutes to tell us in your words where you are family life and what you do yeah sure so um I live in Cardiff uh, with my husband and our, our son Max and I'm at the moment working about three uh, days a week which um has turned out to be ideal for me and, and the kind of uh, work-life balance that we want as a family. Um, I'm a motivational speaker. I speak all over the UK um, and also overseas. And I'm uh, typically sharing my record-breaking expeditions with a variety of audiences, so corporate, um, education and, and youth audiences as well. Yeah. And coupled with that, I do some mountain leading work. Um, much of that is with Duke of Edinburgh's award groups, which is great because it's introducing people to the outdoors. And then in terms of some of the consultancy that I do, um, my husband and I run something called Adventure Inspired Learning. And um, we've been working with some senior leadership teams um, to look at things like relationship awareness um, and high performing teams. So those are teams that have got nothing to do with adventuring, but they're like, I, I think I saw that you did some engineering teams. Is that right? Mm. Um, some things That's like right. that. So, so sort of building on your experiences as adventure people and uh, what you've learned along the way of what works with communication and planning and things like that. Is that right? Absolutely. Taking examples um, from teams in the extremes um, and relating it to, to everyday teams um, in, in a variety of workplaces. Mm, OK, great. So I, I think I understand from your love, your love of adventure came from growing up in one of my favourite places in the world, gorgeous Pembrokeshire. So <laughs> tell us a bit more about life in far west Wales and how you then came up with your ideas for adventure. I uh, loved my childhood. I grew up on a, a farm. It was a mixed farm. And uh, just the freedom to roam and the freedom to explore and 
just the everyday way of life in that you have to go out whatever the weather (laughs) (laughs) and I think that lesson um has has stuck stuck with me um so lots of people say you know was it my mum and dad that sort of took me camping for the first time but in fact my first outdoor experiences were really with girl guiding Mm. and the Duke of Edinburgh's award um so it, yeah it wasn't that my family were big hikers or climbers or anything like that um it, it was yeah those experiences through through those youth organizations and I just kept challenging myself so from for example getting my camp permit as a guide to getting my gold Duke of Edinburgh's award to then thinking well, well where do you go from here you know I've walked for four days and carried a huge backpack what's the next challenge and I came across an organization called British Exploring which is the longest running youth expedition charity that exists in the UK today Um, it has an incredible history founded in 1932 uh, by Surgeon Commander Murray Levick who was a member of Scots Antarctic Expedition and it takes young people uh, teenagers 16 to 20 year olds on um, mainly overseas expeditions that combine science and adventure. And and we're talking about um, remote environments, the Himalayas, uh, the Amazon. And I, in the year 2000, which seems an incredibly long time ago, (laughs) I I heard about this organisation from a a girl above me at school. And uh, she'd been to Kyrgyzstan. And um, the following year, they were running an expedition to Iceland. And I thought, that sounds incredible. It was going to be on the Vatnajökull Glacier. I was very much hoping that I would go on to university to study geography. So the link there was perfect, you know, hopefully finishing my A's and going on to do that um, and doing some, you know, real world field work in between. And I applied and, and just didn't look back. It was the best four weeks uh, that I could have ever spent uh, as a teenager and and that was really the thing that catapulted me into this brilliant world of doing extreme expeditions and adventure because then what happened was I actually then um, I did go to university and then I ended up working for British Exploring for the first three years of my um, my working life and my day job was to recruit young people to go on similar expeditions and I was based at the Royal Geographical Society oh, in wow. London. And I, I don't know if you've been there before yourself um, or, or your listeners have, but, it, you know, it's the home of British exploration and it's just inspirational. The, the types of people that go in and out of there on a daily basis and who I brushed shoulders with uh, and the and just the lectures that are held, mm. in fact. The truth be known, I, I, uh, my colleagues and I used to sneak into the back of some of the Monday night lectures just so that we could hear some of the <laughs> exciting tales of adventure that were, were being told. Yeah, uh, I can imagine it must have been, been a really uh, inspiring place just to be f- surrounded by people who've done extraordinary things all the time. Exactly. And just, you know, all the pictures on the walls told different stories. It was whilst I was working for British Exploring that I met two other women. And we came across a a race called the Polar Challenge, which uh, was a 360 mile race across the frozen sea ice of Arctic Canada uh, to get to the magnetic North Pole. And we discovered that no all female team had ever completed this race before. So an all female team had 
tried it, but they hadn't completed yes. it. Okay, right, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we were intrigued by this mm-hmm. and, um, yeah, thought we'd look into it a bit more and see what it was all about. And, I mean, I oh, just the excitement that came with attending that open day and thinking, oh, I'd love to do something like that. But I think as with, with many of us, when we, we look at things or we flick through newspapers or magazines, we just think, oh, but I could never do that. You know, I'm not I'm not tough enough. I don't have that kind of experience. I don't have that cold weather experience. Um, all of those things were running through my head. But um, I guess safety in numbers, I wasn't going to do this on my own. Yeah. <laughs> Two other girls who I, I worked in an office with. Um, and we decided we'd give it a go. Uh, and so did you were you fundraising for it or was this something that you were funding yourselves um, and how did you go about that yeah it had a fairly hefty uh, price tag mm. of 30,000 right okay gosh yeah that was for the team and um, yeah I mean I was 23 years old mm. at the time I, <laughs> I didn't have that kind of money sitting around so we knew we had to um, organize events try and get some corporate sponsorships, save as much money as we possibly could. Um, and and that was that was incredibly difficult. But we um, we, we organised a huge event um, at a five-star hotel in London. And uh, a lady who um, we knew through British Exploring called Tina Fotherby, she ran her own PR consultancy. And she invited some guests along that evening. And one of those guests was the managing director of Pink Lady Apples. Oh, yes. I'm sure you might have eaten one. <laughs> yeah. And they, they, uh, they, well, they sponsored a friend of mine who was a, uh, who's an, another adventure athlete. Is, that, is this a particular thing of theirs? Pink they, yeah, they certainly went through a phase of, of sponsoring um, some relatively high-profile um, e- extreme expeditions. Um, I know there'd been a... There'd been a transatlantic row that had been sponsored, which actually was unsuccessful. But the media coverage, I think, of the back of it was was good. You know, yes, <laughs> as you say that you know any media coverage yeah, is no, no such thing as bad press. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, so we would we were just well, we couldn't quite believe it when Pink Lady agreed to sponsor us because the fit was perfect. Mm. You know, three women doing something that. Um, a girls team haven't done before Um, and in addition to that we were raising money for a breakthrough breast cancer as well um, which was a charity that was was close to each of us and so just the synergy between the brand and the charity aspect was was great so um we, we certainly had a lot to learn in the nine months that we gave ourselves to to prepare out of the three of us I couldn't ski so I had to, yeah, I had to learn to ski. I was working in London at the time, so I remember going to you know, Bracknell uh, Dry Ski Slope, and then we took ourselves off to uh, Norway over immediately after Christmas and over New Year. It was the coldest, wettest New Year I've ever ever spent oh. um, learning to ski in in Norway. Now it's, but it's not, <clears throat> it's not like skiing, is it? So, so what you would have done at Bracknell was definitely much more downhill orientated mm. you're needing to go along and for in a straight line hopefully uh, for yeah. as long as you can dragging a really heavy pulp behind you is that right yeah I needed a mixture of skills because actually the route that the polar challenge took went up through the Queen Elizabeth uh, 
islands, well, I say through and over the Queen Elizabeth Islands. Oh, okay up in Nunavut territory so we were going to need to go uphill and downhill so the basics of downhill skiing was something that I uh-huh. needed to uh, <laughs> master pretty quickly wow. as as well as then obviously the gliding technique that comes mm. with um, cross-country skiing and managing pulks when you're going downhill and they are inevitably going to <laughs> hit you <laughs> in the backs of your legs uh, and your skis so um so lots of things and I you know I'll Oh, I look back now um, and just think, yeah, you know, I was far from graceful in any of the, <laughs> the techniques that I needed to learn. But you know what? When you're starting out <clears throat> doing these things, sometimes it, it, it doesn't matter. It's it is more about, um, you know, the, the journey and yes, doing it safely. But, you know, you it takes years and years to, you know, to develop a technique and a, and a, and a good style. And uh, and so you managed it. We we did. So we um, yeah we raced for what was eighteen days in the end. Um, it was predicted to take teams anywhere between maybe a, a fortnight and three weeks. Mm-hmm. And we we had some setbacks along along the way. Um, sometimes the weather meant that we could not leave our tents. We felt it was unsafe to leave our tents. There were whiteout conditions. We didn't know if we were going to be um, within 20 or 30 metres potentially from um, polar bears. So we were actually, we felt safer putting up our tents and sitting out some of those bad weather conditions mm. um, and, and then really going as fast as we could when the, when the going was, was good. So you you completed it which must have made your sponsors really happy. You guys must have felt amazing for being the first women's team to have um, got completed the race, which is incredible. So how did you then come back from that and uh, decompress from it and sort of think about what's next and return to normal life? Uh, we we did. We were on such a high, and um, I think that partly comes from the fact that we we were the underdogs. You know, nobody expected us right, to do. Yeah. We, we had everything to prove, and I really love being in that position mm. um, when you know you, you actually not you're not feeling the pressure. And um, so we oh, we loads of things came off the back of it, including an appearance on children's BBC, which. <laughs> so much fun uh you know a bit of a childhood uh, dream that yeah. one and um yeah I was ready to go back to the day job because of course we'd negotiated um th- three weeks off and uh yeah there was, there was work to be done um and but once you've taken yourself that far out of your comfort zone you definitely enter into this world of needing more challenge and I think it becomes addictive and I wasn't necessarily looking for anything specifically but then um, my boyfriend at that time Ben he he sort of casually said one day well I think I'm going to put a team together to climb Mount Everest. (laughs) (laughs) Did he have a huge amount of experience already climbing mountains and said this was a natural next step? He did. He did. He had actually been um, a leader um, on my um, uh, expedition to Iceland with British Exploring. So, Ah, um, so he he did, and 
um, yeah, I mean, he um, was incredibly ambitious. So I knew that this wasn't just a throwaway yeah. <laughs> comment. Like this was something that was that was probably going to happen. But but my response was, ah. Uh, I'll come to base camp with you. That'd be cool. You know, I haven't been to the Himalayas before. Mm. And, uh, you know, I can help with some charity fundraising and, and some PR and communications and things. And he said, well, you know, at least come on the training expeditions and do some of the smaller mountains and see what it's all about. So I sort of agreed to that. And then he started doing more and more research and looking into guides and the history books and the record books. And he said, did you know that no woman from Wales has ever climbed to the summit? And 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 he was right. There had been an English woman, a Scotswoman, and an Irish woman um, at that point in time. So we're talking. It was two thousand and six when he suggested it, and I just I couldn't get it out of my head. Then I thought, <laughs> I, well, first I couldn't believe that that was true. Yeah, and and it, and it was the first Welshman um, had climbed in the nineties. And yeah, no Welsh woman. And and it really uh, struck a chord and, and sort of tapped into something in me, which l- linked back to my childhood, where I really admired my peers at school who um, got a cap for Wales or represented the county in sports mm-hmm. events. And I just didn't show any particular flair or, or talent for anything that was going to get me picked <laughs> to do uh, to do any of that. But at the age of, um, well, I was then 24, this this was it. I knew this was it. And and I guess I had similar emotions as I did prior to the Polar Challenge in that I was equally excited as I was apprehensive. Right. And, and those are really, you know, contrasting emotions because yeah. one of them, you're seeing yourself doing this thing being successful, uh, imagining what it's like to stand on top of the world. And then the other one is making you go, but this is going to be so hard. And how on earth am I going to do this? Mm. And, you know, I don't necessarily have the right uh, skills or experience at the moment. And just it just seemed impossible. So um, but then, yeah, so did the Polar Challenge. So I knew at that point in time that I should go for it. And I should put everything into it. <laughs> so you and your boyfriend were going as a, a team together, is that right? Were, were you doing? Was any uh, other people in your team, or you were joining a, a, an expedition that was going there already? No, um, Ben wanted to put um, his own team together, and he was studying at London Business School at the time, and put the word out. And there was initially quite a large interest, over twenty people. But um, after one uh, trip to Scotland <laughs> to do uh, some winter mountaineering, that quickly uh, <laughs> decreased in size, and there were four of us in the end. Oh. Um, so which included uh, Greg, uh, who was um, from South Africa, but studying in London and Omar uh, from Egypt, um, uh, also studying in London at the time. Ho- and Omar was hoping to be the first Egyptian. Oh, climb. amazing. So, yeah. So nice to have sort of two. Um, yeah. Significant. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, and so what what was the preparation like? Did you did you do some smaller mountains and did it take a long time to train for it did you give yourself quite a long time to train and then again you had the thing of fundraising because Everest again is a really expensive mountain to climb isn't it 
Yeah, um, yeah. The the budget for just my place on the team and all of my kit and equipment and all of the other mountains that we climbed around the world before actually going to the Himalayas uh, was fifty four thousand um, pounds. Yeah. Once again, you know, I didn't have that myself, so it was it was about going out and trying to source that um, and save the money myself. And I naively thought that with the track record of the Polar Challenge um, and having worked successfully with a corporate sponsor, that it, it would wouldn't be too difficult uh, <laughs> to find. Um, how how wrong <laughs> could I have been? Um, because oh, I just got rejection after rejection and, and people just doubting me and not believing me and um yeah I mean okay people didn't have the budget but I wasn't going to give up um and and it paid off um because in the end and it was really through the London Business School Network uh, we were able to um secure the support from Investec Asset Management and the de facto group um, so they um, gave us a significant contribution uh, to that total. I, I still, in terms of my own sort of um, finances, I took out um, uh, all of my savings that my granddad had given me uh, when he passed away. Um, he, however, was a Royal Marine Commando, and I think... Oh, wow that he would have been incredibly proud to know what I was spending, uh, Absolutely. spending yeah. that much on. And, um, and yeah, I borrowed some money from, from my parents. So I, I took some big financial risks, mm. because, you know, if, yeah, the chance that it might not be successful was, was a real one. Absolutely, uh, because obviously it's so weather dependent and there are, there are risks that are beyond your control that can mean that you you don't manage to actually summit even if you get sort of anywhere near the top um mm. mother nature is ultimately in control of whether whether you get there that's right so yeah um i guess the age that i was 24 nearly 25 i just thought oh, i'm i'm just going to go for it yeah yeah <laughs> i think i might be more cautious now yeah <laughs> 12 years on but um yeah, so I, I was prepared to do that. And then in terms of the training, uh, we had given ourselves about 18 months to train and prepare. Mm -hmm. So a lot of that focused on our actual yeah, measuring our fitness. And we worked closely with Dr. Justin Roberts. at the He was at the University of Hertfordshire. And I'd worked with him on the Polar Challenge. And so he would put us through VO2 max testing. He'd help us devise um, specific training plans that looked at us using heart rates to train and doing threshold runs to really push the the, the point at where we um, I guess switch from aerobic to anaerobic respiration and to also look at our, our diets uh, as well so it, it was brilliant working with Justin it just yeah. gave us um, a, a real focus and a, and, a, and a true measure that we were getting fitter and when everything else was falling apart and the money wasn't coming in and other logistical things weren't working out to see yourself getting fitter you know you, you hung on to that <laughs> yeah um, I, I, I think uh, that's right I'm right in saying that the up to Everest base camp a lot of people obviously do the trek for it so they they train a lot for for the trek so that's a, a, a hike 
really. Yeah. The rest of it from then on, as you go up camp, um, you know, all the different camps and then towards the summit, you're starting to get into a mixture of a really icy, snowy hike and some climbing and some glacier crossing and things like that. So um, did yeah. your tra- did your fitness, was your fitness really important to that second part of it, the actual climbing of the actual mountain rather, you know, from base camp onwards? Or was that then more of a sort of technical or mental game from then on? Um, fitness is, is definitely important, if anything, just for your rate of recovery. Right, because okay. It's such a long expedition. Um, I was in Nepal for 72 days. Mm was two and a half months and your body has got to get up and do the same thing day in day out and the fitter you are the faster it's it's going to recover yeah. you know the climbing itself um is incredibly slow and our bodies genetically are, are are different and cope differently with the altitude so i did struggle a lot with with headaches um, and with nausea for uh, really between uh, base camp, so from about 5,300 metres um, up to about 6,500 metres, I, I suppose. Um, for me, that's where I feel my body has to undergo most change. And then above that, because you've been on the mountain for so long at that point, it almost gets a little bit easier. When So uh, when you go to base camp, yeah, that's a journey that can be undertaken in, in hiking boots. And then from base camp, everything above that, you're, you're in crampons and you're wearing uh, a climbing harness. There are, there's not much actual climbing involved. There are a, f- a few sections. Um, there's a, a small abseil that you have to do uh, off, off the yellow band. But in the main, it is an incredibly steep and exposed walk um i suppose you know you, you're not ever you're set, setting any of the ropes yourself those are all in place yeah um and they have been put in place by climbing um climbing sherpas mm. so but the it, it is about the mental game on everest and it is telling yourself that you're going to find the energy from somewhere for the next day and the next day and the next day because i would just get to the end of every day high up on the mountain and just think how how am I going to do tomorrow? <laughs> um, it's uh, yeah, just just exhausting. Um, and the the cold, um, yeah, I think the worst thing is trying to get out of your tent in the morning when everything's frozen and the inside of your tent is covered in ice, and then it rains down on <laughs> on your gear. Um, the, yeah, the altitude when you when you're up at around seven thousand meters. And before you start using oxygen, so as a team, we had chosen to use supplemental oxygen. Yeah, you're acutely aware that you're in a world where actually the human body is at its limit, really. Uh, We used a blood oxygen um, saturation uh, monitor, Uh a small device that you can put over your finger. And I did that when I reached uh, camp four when I was actually then going to go on to the summit and my blood oxygen saturation was 65%. Oh, wow. So, um, it's normally, uh, well, for, for anybody who yeah doesn't know quite w- what that means, if you were to go into a hospital and it was below about 95%, there would be cause for concern. 
Okay, so you, I mean, it's your choice, right? You're willingly putting yourself there into this death zone and um, putting yourself into extraordinary circumstances and thinking, oh, I'm just going to keep on pushing on anyway, even though basically I would be, you know, I'm on, on my way out at this point if I was in any other circumstance. So how does that feel to have your blood oxygen at that point and to be experiencing all of those extremes and like you said the tiredness and the continual cold and um you know how on earth am I going to get up and get going every morning and 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 still have that thing of and I wanted to do this you know Mm -hmm. no one's making you be there and you could easily just go do you know what I can't I can't do this I'm going to get off what what was it that kept going kept you going it definitely focuses the mind yeah Um, you are responsible for yourself you can't give up on that. <laughs> yeah. You know that if you've you've got to get yourself up and down the mountain, nobody else is going to do that yeah. for you um, because everybody else is is suffering. Um, yeah, your cognitive function is definitely impaired. Mm. You know, sure the brain is going at half speed. We've got things that we sort of caught on camera of each other and they're wrong they're just factually incorrect (laughs) we're saying things that um yeah aren't right so uh, I guess you've always got the goal uh, of reaching the top in your head but you've you've always got to be looking around you and looking at the the changing circumstances and and I actually was meant to go to the summit in fact we were all meant to go as a team um and we were aiming for the top on the 17th of May, but I became ill and I was sick and, oh, yeah, really not very good. I had eaten or drunk something that disagreed with me. Mm. I knew, I knew my gut instinct was I am not well enough to climb higher. In, in some ways, it was an easy decision. It wasn't sort of borderline, am I, am I not well enough? I knew I wasn't well enough. So unfortunately, I had to make the really difficult decision to to descend and um, Ben actually wasn't feeling great either. And, and so he descended and, and Greg and Omar went on to the summit to successfully uh, reach the top. Mm. Meanwhile, um, Ben and I were back down at base camp um, well, trying to get better and just hoping that there would be another opportunity in terms of the weather conditions for us to, to uh, try and, and get back up um, the, the following week which fortunately both of those things came together right uh, and so exactly a week later then um we were able to launch um our um, attempt at the summit although the weather conditions weren't quite as calm as they were for greg and omar they um they still gave us some um, yeah the best chance of, of getting to the top and uh so so that must have been a really big so well like you said you were so ill that it was you know wasn't even a shall we shan't we it was a sort of like I can't can't even take another step upwards Mm -hmm. I need to get down to recover my body as much as possible but you're obviously then sacrificing the amount that you've gained up the mountain to then go down and then have to do that same distance again before you then start your approach to the summit so um that must have been a huge sacrifice uh, for you at that point. So um, how did, uh, in the end, is a lot of, a lot of, you know, the summit of Everest, summiting 
being at the mercy of the weather, being at the mercy of the altitude sickness, all of that stuff, is it, does it come down to a head game? And then is that, is that something that you really took away from that, that, that experience of being accepting of, of outside forces? Yeah, um, when I made the decision to go down, I just said to myself, well, if 2007 isn't my year, it's not my year. Right. And I'll come back. And I just had to think of it in really, um, yeah, kind of factual terms and kind of take take the emotion out of it. Um, and I, absolutely, that your your summit attempt then it is about mindset. And once I'd sort of got over that illness, I I felt ready to go. But one thing that threw it back into question was when Greg and Omar returned to base camp and they looked awful. (laughs) These are guys that were twice my size, six foot four, um, you know, big, strong, broad shouldered uh, men. And they were like shadows of their former selves and their lips were falling off and their voices were hoarse and they could barely carry their rucksacks anymore and and I just thought, if that's what the summit does to them, yeah. what is it going to do to me? Uh, and that's where you kind of have to give yourself this private pep talk. You've got to tell yourself that you can do it because, and I, I say this in many of my talks, you know, sometimes you've got to be your own coach because, yes, there are people around you, but they might not give you that it, most important piece of advice and encouragement at the right time so you've got to learn to kind of find it for yourself and and that was where you know at the base camp I was saying uh, to myself you know come on you've, you've trained you've you've proved yourself on other mountains around the world um the, the biggest that we'd climbed uh, prior to Everest was the world's sixth highest mountain uh, Choyoyu mm-hmm. which is 8,201 meters compared to Everest at 8,848 so I had to get my head back into the fact that I'd been successful there and, and what had gone right there and uh, and get ready to go and kind of not think about <laughs> what I was looking at in terms of my teammates and, and what they'd just just been through yeah that's when when you then climb higher up the mountain and you're at camp four again there were two things simultaneously happening before I left the tent at camp four firstly it was the practical stuff it was like right have I got my hand warmers in and my toe warmers and are they in are they in the right place because once I put them in my boots there's going to be no moving them around if Mm. I put them in the wrong place and they're like under the ball of my foot and <laughs> really irritating it for the entire sort of 10 or, or 15 hour climb, whatever it, it was to be. But then at the same time, it was about what your head is saying to you. And it, you leave for the summit at about 9 p.m. at night and it's it's dark. And I always think that things seem so much worse in the dark. Yeah. And, and I did have the thoughts of, you know, what if a storm comes in that's unexpected? And what if I get separated from my my Sherpa and, and our guide? Um, and, and then the thoughts of some of the uh, incidents that have happened over previous years, you know, came yeah. into the front of my mind. And and it's about learning to, to push out those negative thoughts because they're just not useful at that point in time. You have to concentrate on what, what you're doing. And one of the techniques, um, quite simply, and you 
I use this not not just uh, in extreme environments, but um, to persuade myself that I've got the uh, the energy and motivation to go out for a run, for example, um, is to listen to some music, some good, uplifting, positive music. And in the year 2007, I, um, I'm, I'm grateful because my MP3 player was still working at this point in time and the batteries hadn't uh, okay. died in the um, I listened to a bit of Amy Winehouse. Yeah and her Black to Black, um, Back to Black album. And that just helped me get in that right mindset so that I could just be positive and hopefully keep that positivity going all the way to the summit and get me back down again safely. And you did summit. So you were the first Welsh woman to stand mm-hmm. on the top of Everest. So what was that really like? It, it was incredible. You know, this the the main emotion was just one of relief that all of the hard work and mm. training had been worth it because there honestly honestly wasn't one day in 18 months where I didn't do something that would hopefully put me and the team yeah. on the top not one day and so to, to actually get there just felt uh, incredible um the views were amazing. I, I wanted to stay up there for much longer. I, I did stay up there for quite a long time, but, uh, just over half an hour, in fact. Oh, that's quite a long so, time, isn't it? it? For some people, yeah. don't get so long. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I needed that. We'd we'd climbed in in quite a good time, so about ten hours from Camp Four up to the summit. Um, so at first, I was scared to sit down because I thought what if I sit down and actually I'm so exhausted and, and what if the altitude just kind of grips me at this point mm. if I can't get back down again? So um, there was that feeling of relief, um, but also the vulnerability of mm-hmm. being so far from help. Mm. Um, because you can't get a helicopter rescue. Up there. Mm. And you, you know that you've just got to really be in tune with what's going on in your own body. And I think, you you, you know, you can only do that by having pushed yourself in, uh, you know, in your training and on other mountains around the world to really know what your body is saying to you and what, what's going on. Um, and so I stayed it there for, yeah, um, almost 40 minutes. And by that point, yeah, my hands were getting cold. And I thought, right, if they get any colder than this, um, then I'm going to have trouble warming them back up again. And I need to start generating a bit more body heat again. Mm. Um so I need to get moving. Um, but yeah, you know, the, the, the pride of, of having got there and, and done it for Wales um, was was incredible. At the time, I was the youngest uh, British woman as well. Uh-huh. There there are a few younger than me now. But... Yeah, there are just a couple. <laughs> they seem to, seem to get younger and younger each time somebody new goes up. But uh uh, but the, the, I mean, like you say, to be the first Welsh woman, and which just seems ridiculous that it took all the way into the two thousands to for a Welsh woman to go up seem, is uh, is amazing, and that's yours forever. Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, how was coming down? How was getting all the way back to Kathmandu? How was the decompression from being <laughs> on top of the world? Oh uh, yeah, coming down. Um... Yeah, we, we you had to remind yourself to still keep making sensible decisions because there was so much temptation to just charge down the mountain mm-hmm. and go through the icefall and not take an extra day at Camp Two and 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 go through the icefall when it was unstable. But actually, 
the right and the safer option was to um, take our time and, and um, yeah, go in the early hours of the morning through the ice fall to get back to base camp. Um, I felt like a superhero when I got back down to base <laughs> camp. I remember somebody tapping me on the shoulder and saying, Tori, you, you can take your rucksack off now, you know. <laughs> so I'm wearing this 90 litre bag and that, you know, I'm just oblivious to the fact that it's on my back just because I'm, I feel so incredible <laughs> um, that I'd been to the top. Uh, and then as you walk down the valley, you know, your lungs just fill with even more and more. Um, oh, must be so, um, so, such a relief. It's like literally getting an oxygen tank, but without having to breathe it any longer. It's... Yes. Um, and then I remember um, distancing myself from uh, the receptionist at the Yak and Yeti Hotel in Kathmandu um, when we got back there, um, just because I was really self-conscious that I smelt really bad. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I just I just wanted uh, the key to my room <laughs> so I could um, go and have multiple showers and baths. <laughs> yeah um okay so so there's there's uh, something that a lot of adventurers talk about where they they come back and they get depressed because they're basically they've done something so amazing they've been pushing themselves so hard in the preparation and the fundraising and like you said thinking about it every single day for you know a long time um how do you get back into normal life you'd obviously done this a couple of times now so where you um were you quite experienced at being able to just kind of go, okay, shopping at Tesco's, paying for parking, I don't know, all of that sort of normal mundane stuff that we all have to do? Um, shopping was one uh, <laughs> memory that I had because um, I just wanted to do supermarket sweep and just uh, <laughs> grab everything off the shelves, all the things that I hadn't eaten for uh, the last couple of months. Um but no, initially, I mean, I didn't have a job when I got back because I'd quit my job okay. um, to give me the time to to spend uh, on Everest. So um, and I, I needed to start earning some money pretty swiftly. Mm-hmm. So I was definitely focused um, to, to get a job again. Um, I was somewhat maybe overconfident as to some of the <laughs> types of jobs that I might get, Um but I applied for them anyway and got loads of interviews where I was never, ever going to get the job just because people saw Everest on the top of my CV. <laughs> I wanted to interview it. So that was interesting. But um, I did then land upon um, a, a brilliant job that kind of combined what I'd just gone through, if you like, in terms of the preparation for Everest in that I joined um, an organisation called Enterprise UK, it uh, used to deliver Global Entrepreneurship Week. And I really saw the similarities with entrepreneurs that are trying to turn an idea into reality and struggles that they go through with, you know, with the concept and the, um, the funding and, uh, and all of that um, with, with mounting an expedition. And so I, um, I, I got a job. And I ran something called the Make Your Mark Challenge, which was the UK's 
biggest one day enterprise competition for secondary schools, um, which was just great fun because it was um, because I see so many of the skills involved in mounting expeditions. Uh, they are entrepreneurial ones. They're exactly what you need um, to get a business idea off the ground. So it was great to be able to kind of see other people on their journey and, and, and having their own challenges and kind of work along alongside um, a bigger te- team of people um, mm. helping, helping people to, to make that happen. Um, but alongside that, um, I often um, explain that there was one um, moment whilst I was working for Enterprise UK and I remember getting a a monthly award, like an employee award for for doing something well. And I really wasn't that fussed by it. And I thought, hang on a second, you know, I've just been awarded this and I I should be really proud. I should, you know, (laughs) And, and I wasn't. And I thought, Hmm. need to get things back into perspective just because I've climbed Everest it it doesn't mean that I can't appreciate uh, you know other perhaps smaller things in <laughs> um so I needed to relearn how to appreciate um the small things and it, it was a it was a good wake-up call um it really really was um and yeah I think uh yeah I definitely got things <laughs> back into perspective um um, but but you didn't stop adventuring. It wasn't like Everest was the last thing you did. You've then done some completely ridiculous things since then. So how did you come up with your next challenge, mission, adventure, and uh, why did you decide to do that one? Um, so, uh, yeah, after the next one was a chance um, meeting with a lady called Maria Leistam. She um, is another uh, Welsh uh, female adventurer, and she posted an advert in the South Wales Echo looking for other adventurous Welsh women um, to potentially um, do some adventure racing together. And anyway, we we met up. In fact, um, well, she tells the story that I was the only person that actually responded to her (laughs) (laughs) advert, which we find amusing. Um, and we got together and started talking about a few ideas and we're talking about New Zealand because my sister had just moved there to live and she said well why don't we run the length of New Zealand and um, again I was looking at sort of annual leave or time between jobs and I thought oh I I don't really have sort of six or eight months whatever it might take to to run it but shall we cycle so um, we decided to um, yeah take our bikes over to New Zealand and, and cycle the length of the country, which is about 2,400 kilometres. I'd never done anything like that before. And I'm really proud to say that the bike that I did it on was the bike that my dad bought me to go to university. No. <laughs> and I've still got it. It's still out in the garden shed right now. It's now the bike that I put um, a, a child seat on the back of it so I can cycle max around Cardiff oh my god that (laughs) is amazing so uh, no part of you thought oh I'm going off to do this enormous cycle ride I ought to get a bike that I don't know is specific for it one of those touring bikes or anything like that no this this was all about the budget it it was it's how (laughs) how can we do this on a shoestring right Uh, okay so and and it's just a great example of um 
doing it in completely the opposite way to Everest. Everest was planned to the nth degree. New Zealand was not planned. You know, we <laughs> we rocked up with our bikes. We hitched a lift to the top of the North Island. Um, and we had a, a road map, which we figured would be good enough. And we just started making our way south and asking people for suggested routes on our way. <laughs> I like that. that. That's where you get actually getting contributions from other people rather than just ignoring the people and riding through their, their country. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we got, you know, given hospitality, which oh, added to the story. Yeah. So had to tell um and it was just a brilliant brilliant journey and shows how yeah sometimes making it up as you go along um is, is the best way um and yeah it, it was just an incredible journey and it made me realize how traveling by bike is such a brilliant mode of transport because mm. you get to cover a large amount of ground but at the same time if you see something that you think might be worth investigating it's pretty easy to to do so and mm, in comparison sort of running or something like that and yeah. so did you use that so you didn't use that trail that goes down the spine of the country that Anna McNuff used the te... te, 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 te Aurora, yeah it, we, you didn't you went by road did you yeah we mainly did roads mm. um, we did test out a few of uh, a few newly created cycle tracks that were, were being put together at the time but no it was um mainly roads we did paddle for two days on the Wanganui river oh yeah and switched our bikes uh for kayaks uh, <laughs> for two days which uh was a nice uh, change and right. then Maria actually took part in the uh coast to coast adventure race once we were down on the south oh line. wow yeah um and I crewed uh for her along with another uh friend so um yeah that was um yeah that was incredible she had a, a week off to sort of just get her <laughs> give her legs a rest um and then she she competed in that um and then yeah we carried on cycling south <laughs> <laughs> and then she just hopped back on the normal bike and carried on going wow all right and so then you came back from that amazing uh you know shoestring adventure and a little bit of normal life and then you went off and did another crazy thing yeah so more recently um the challenge um that i was a part of um it's called beeline britain and the concept is very simple uh two of the uk's most iconic um landmarks land's end and john O'Groats, join them in a straight line so i mean a ruler on a map there's your straight line um lots of people sort of think oh well you know does it go through manchester or um but take a look on the map and this line it takes you across the widest mouth of the Bristol Channel from Land's End to touch the western tip of Pembrokeshire then it clips Anglesey goes through the Isle of Man joins Scotland in Dumfries and Galloway goes up through Glasgow um, over the Cairngorms um, over the um, Murray Forth and then um, on on to uh, John O'Groats wow. and um this was a new concept nobody had ever done it like this before um and for very good reason I think because <laughs> um, it was horrendous uh, yeah, so uh, so were you the first team to do this you guys came up with it or had someone so, else come up with it so um team member Ian O'Grady it was all of his idea um he came up with the concept um and initially recruited um some friends or mutual 
uh, friends of his, um, Adam Harmer, who's an outdoor instructor up at Placer Brennan. Um, and Nick Beaton, who um, was a, a captain in the army, um, but tragically uh, lost both his legs um, above the knee in an IED explosion in Afghanistan. Um, and uh, Nick's, uh, he's now a Paralympian. He's competed in both uh, mixed double skulls um, oh, wow. and uh, he's now kayaking and hopefully we'll see him um, next year. And then they were they were looking for a fourth um, and female team member. And um, yeah, I'd met a friend of Ian's and they said, oh, why didn't you ask Tori? <laughs> see, if, see if she's ever been she's there. She's mad enough, let's say, <laughs> yeah. Um, but so um, this journey um, crossed uh, the, the sea, it crossed land. So it was it was going to be a multidisciplinary mm. uh, journey um, with sea kayaking, road cycling, mountain biking and hiking. Um, and I initially, I, I, you know, they contacted me and I thought, oh, it won't be very challenging. It's in the UK, uh, lands in John O'Groats, oh, really. But then I, uh, I met up with them. I heard about the, the sea kayaking legs and I thought, oh no, actually this, this is, <laughs> this is really tough. And I realized that I was scared of it and and that's because um I hadn't done much sea kayaking and I get incredibly seasick oh gosh so there was the challenge that was the challenge in it for me um it was to learn to sea kayak and get my skills up and then go on on this journey and and if you know if ever I'm looking at a, a new journey of any kind if it's by human power alone if it's unsupported um, if it's yeah, yeah this fantastic you know a to b route i'm in um that's that's what really gets me excited so we it, the crux of the challenge really was the sea kayaking elements and we got lots of advice um but also some advice which says said well that first leg from land's end um across the widest mouth of the bristol channel to pembrokeshire it's not possible and actually you need to consider going up and the north coast of of Cornwall and Devon and cutting across to South Wales and then going back and getting on your route. And it it would not be possible because the currents are so strong and because the water is so dangerous or? Yeah, both of those things. Definitely a huge tidal range that you get, you know, within that um, Severn estuary. Um, And yeah, the length of time that we would need to be at sea, you could not guarantee that we would have suitable sea and wind conditions for the amount of time because we were predicting that that 210 kilometre stretch could take us anywhere up to 36 hours of non-stop kayak. Oh, oh my God. Were you in a four-person kayak? We were in two, two double twos. Right, okay, two double twos. And that was a very deliberate uh, decision because it's far easier to keep two kayaks together than four kayaks. And then you've got, obviously, the um, the combined power of, of two paddlers in, in mm. one boat. Yeah. So um, we were – but we were determined to do it in the straight line because that was the concept. And without that, you know, what <laughs> What was the challenge? Mm. Um so the team, uh, before I joined the team, had done some brilliant research into historical weather conditions and when were we most likely to get um, a really good period of, of, um, of good weather. Um, and we uh, looked at all our, our 
commitments and, and you know work and family and all the rest of it and we said right well we'll put the 17th of um oh, sorry the 18th of may in the diary and we'll go as soon as we possibly can after that when when the weather comes good and as we approached that date it quickly became clear that actually the weather was going to be perfect on the 17th so we had to get everybody ready in advance and bearing in mind now it wasn't just the four of us we had um an extended support team made up um in part um by students from liverpool john moore's university some were journalism students and some were outdoor education students oh wow and the idea behind this was that behind the project, there would be um, a personal development um, element. My husband was, in fact, running this part of the programme. So it would be both hands-on um, and theoretical for those young people to complement the what they were studying at university. So they all helped out with putting bikes and kayaks and, and, and food and clothing in the right place. But at the same time, they were involved in getting some media coverage for us um, or looking at how they were working as a team or even how we were working and and performing as a team so that was all part of of the journey we couldn't have done it without them uh, for sure and there were so many logistical um, that needed to be fulfilled so yeah so we we got everything ready by the 17th and yeah this amazing high pressure weather system came and sat over the Bristol Channel (laughs) and we departed Land's End with the flattest sea you have ever, ever, oh, ever seen. <laughs> it was beautiful. It was, oh, it was glassy. Um, it was incredible. And so we, we left in, in perfect conditions. And we had perfect conditions for maybe about 20 hours. And then um, certainly through the night and into the early hours of the following morning, the sea really picked up and we were at the limit of what we could manage um, in those double sea kayaks so I was at the front of um, my boat with Ian and one minute the, the front of the boat would be up on the crest of a wave and I'd be sort of paddling air and then I would be plunged down into the trough of a wave and yeah. it would splash over my head I'd be drenched and it, it was amazing that we we didn't capsize because if we had have done it would have been game over because we'd have been paddling for well over 24 hours at that point in time and I just don't think that we could have got back in our boats uh, and and carried on going. Goodness me well it's really I mean I'm actually just on the website at the moment so I will Mm -hmm. make the website on the uh, show notes so if you're listening you can take a quick look at this ridiculous route that you just look at and you think that's not even like who on earth came up with that idea and, and actually continued on through it because there's so much paddling and then a tiny bit of hitting land, more paddling, a tiny mm. bit of hitting land, and then a really, really long cycle hike and some more, a little bit more paddling and then a, bit, a little bit more cycling. I mean, they, how long did it take you in the end? So the whole journey took us uh, 28 days in total. Okay. Um, and I think... Um, I think seven or eight of those were rest days, um, either rest because we actually physically needed a rest mm. or because we were waiting for the right weather to then launch the next right. okay. phase. Um, um, has anyone done it since? Not to my knowledge. Um, 
you will see on the website as well uh, our actual satellite track um, that we took using a yellow brick tracker. So I challenge anybody to do a straighter line uh, oh, than yeah. the that we did. I know it's not exactly straight, um, but we limited ourselves to traveling within a, a 15 kilometer corridor. Um, and that gave us the opportunity okay. to obviously take public rights of ways and yeah. um, roads rather than uh, trespass. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes, exactly. In order to People get around. Yeah, <laughs> so that is a really extraordinary. That must have, I mean, how did that compare to Everest on the sort of physical uh, nature of the of the, of it and the the sort of headspace because the 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 kayaking being in such enormous water and uh, and then having to get onto land and then get back into the water again and land and water and all of that how did all of that compare to Everest? That that first kayak, um, I experienced really similar emotions to being on the South Col and getting ready to go for the summit of Everest because everything had to be in the right place if I had put something in the wrong hatch in my kayak mm-hmm. or I something was out of reach that I was really going to need during that um that paddle um oh it would make things you know so much more difficult or even dangerous if, if I'd forgotten something mm-hmm. so um yeah my head was spinning in in the preparation phase before we we launched our kayaks uh, off the beach and then, yeah, when we're in the middle of the Bristol Channel, a very similar feeling of being beyond rescue. Even though there was a support boat not too far from us in the water, the reality was that if the sea picked up um, it, to a dangerous degree, we might not be able to be rescued. Mm. Or it was going to be more dangerous to rescue us than, um, you know, than, than not. So, yeah, there was this real sense of we're on our own here. We've got to we've got to make this work. And we We've just got to keep paddling until we get there. Um, and in the end, um, in some ways, it was more of an endurance challenge than that summit day on Everest. You know, my summit day on Everest was 15 hours start to finish. Mm-hmm. Gosh, paddle, right. Um, yeah. So the comparison. Yeah. Yeah. And that paddle from Land's End to Pembrokeshire in the end was 34 and a half hours of oh, nonstop God. paddling. Um, so... Uh, yeah, and and then for for days afterwards, I was oh, just exhausted, and right. uh, I think I'd sort of knocked out my body's sort of um, thermoregulation because I'd be somewhere that was really warm, but I'd be shivering, and yeah, it was really really weird. Yeah. So again, you completed this extraordinary mission and challenge. You you got to the end of of what must have been a real well like you say you know you that that sort of the nerves the emotions everything of the start having to push yourself through it you got to the end of it you you did something amazing as a team so how did that feel when you got to the end and then then as I, I I think I'm looking at your your dates right your next challenge was was having a baby so how how did that how did that sort of fit into to your decompression from this enormous amazing challenge that you really had to extraordinarily push yourself through to then thinking okay family knife now um so just finishing off beeline britain i think the important yeah. thing to say about the beeline britain challenge is that whilst it was clearly a challenge for me particularly the sea kayaking element um the um, the aim of the challenge was to raise awareness of, of life beyond injury for those servicemen and women who, okay. um, you know, have 
um, suffered these serious injuries. And I think one of the most inspirational days I've ever spent in the mountains in my life was when um, the Beeline Britain team, um, all four of us, climbed both Ben McDewey and uh, Ken Gorm Mountain. Um, not because um, it was something I didn't think I could achieve, but uh, for Nick, um, climbing those two um, Scottish peaks um, on his stumps, um, having, you know, being some years on from his injury and perhaps certainly during that time thinking that he would never return to those mountains where he had had climbed um previously um was just incredible and and testament to well his own personal um you know determination and, and grit um and just really an example of of what uh, what we can all do in the mountains whatever our abilities um and that you know we really should enable as many people um to, to get into the outdoors um as possible yeah uh, that must be very motivating for you then to 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 look at that as a as an as an achievement and to take that on that feeling of oh my god i mean if he can do that in that those circumstances then humans are incredible and we can do anything yeah and just you know on a case-by-case basis if somebody comes to you um you know with um perhaps injuries or that may mean that they think that they they can't do a particular outdoor activity well you know let's just stop and look at how how we can make it happen for Mm. them Mm. um because because there are ways certainly um so um yeah that that journey hopefully did um did uh, a small bit to to raise awareness uh, of of that and then yeah i guess yeah the next challenge <laughs> was um to to, uh, to to start a family um and well it's been brilliant um so far <laughs> um, max is is just awesome and yeah, we're certainly taking him on as many adventures as we possibly can. Are you? Um, okay, cause, because one of the things I was going to ask is, obviously, as somebody who has been very driven to be accepting their next challenge and looking at, for sort of new adventures and things that have been very involving in life, like your preparation, not just not just doing the thing, but like you said, you know, before Everest, it was 18 months of doing something towards getting to Everest every single day, really involving, it's very time consuming, very energy consuming. So a baby, it really takes out pretty much all of the time that you have to spend on something else. So so um, even if you wanted to go on an adventure, and you were able to take, okay, I'm going to take two weeks out and, and go off and do something brilliant and go off and do that. How, how, um, you know, the preparation time and everything is, is extremely hard if you have babies to look after, of course, because your, your life is dedicated to them for a, quite a lot of, uh, it, uh, you know, a good few years at least. And so how was that change in your head for you to, to flip that around from one life pre pre-baby to afterwards yeah I think initially you think oh you know I want to carry on doing things the same way as I've done them before and then you you know I quickly realized that actually this is a different part of my life it's a different chapter I have to do things differently for for everybody's benefit um you know for us as a family and, and Max 
growing up I'm I'm not looking to go away for eight or ten weeks at a time now and do some big um, uh, overseas expeditions that's just not how I want to run the next um, few years of my life because I want want to be around so it it's about squeezing adventure into much shorter um, periods of time when it's when it's for yeah for for me personally Um, so um, and I, you know, I love that. I I am getting my outdoor fix of just going away for one or two nights at a time and doing something adventurous, whether it's, you know, going up to Scotland or I, um, in fact, I took Max with me to join Anna McNuff on a section of her Barefoot Britain. Yes run uh, back oh that's that's how <laughs> yes that's how that's how I found you was by yeah. uh, following Anna's little trail and then she said that she was meeting up with you and you did you cycle alongside her with Max that's right, right. yes yeah. <laughs> which um you know that and we were lucky with the weather I don't think I'd have taken him if uh, the weather wasn't right. so good but um you, you know you have to be re- realistic about about these things and it, it, it just worked out and it was it was an incredible day out um cycling alongside her and picking blackberries from the hedgerows to keep Max um <laughs> occupied and so I, has it has it changed your need for adventure and and how you satisfy that the things the thing that really satisfies me is well being being in the mountains um being in remote mountains and when I say remote you you can find some remote bits of the of the of Wales and of the UK I mean I was in Scotland recently with a friend and we didn't see anybody for 24 hours oh wow um, where we went which is just my idea of heaven yeah um and we found a bothy and there was nobody staying in that bothy and we had it to ourselves and yeah you know that just picked me up and energized me and um and then you know I have so much more to give when I do get back um to Max so yes that's um yeah so I I guess I'm just appreciating um how much energy all of that that gives me at the minute and then in terms of you know mounting any expeditions or challenges in the future I just can't like you say, work on them seven days a week, um, exclusive to everything else in my life, like like I might have been able to do previously. It's much more of a juggling act. Um, and I guess uh, the, the team element will be so important going forward for, you know, the next things um, to, to share the to share the load um, to, to make, you know, make challenges happen. And presumably it's sort of changed the way that you uh, talk and communicate to other people about being able to take on challenges or or, um, push yourself or motivate yourself. Because I think one of the things that I definitely uh, hear from women that that I talk to or... um, Uh, or hear from women about their responses to listening to what other people say is they go well it's all well and good so and so saying that they just decided to go off and kayak down such and such or or or, I don't know run the run the trail in Spain the Camino de Santiago or or, uh, climb a mountain or something like that but how on earth am I ever going to do that because I've got the kids to take to school or I've got um I've got the baby to look after or something like that. So presumably now having gone from motor, giving motivational speeches where you're sort of saying, you know, 
whatever it is you say that encourages people and motivates them, now you have a much more broader aspect of, I know what it's like to, to have an al alternative commitment in my life that means that I can't just go, yes, I'm going to go ahead and do that thing. I can say yes to anything where well, you can't say yes to anything now. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely can't say yes to as many things. I'm, I'm still learning that skill. <laughs> yeah. Two, two years in um yeah you do have to grab um your opportunities for fitness as well and squeeze it around nursery pickups and drop-offs and and all the rest of it mm -hmm. um I think you know you're far more I'm far more focused in my work you know if I know that I've got two hours to get something done I really will think to myself what is the most important thing here whether it's from a you know family or work uh, perspective and I make sure I get it done and I don't procrastinate and <laughs> I mean, and I mean, you know, my my husband and I, um, we, we sort of, I guess, take it in turns, really, if we want to train for an event or, or do right. something. Um, we won't both try and do something at the same time. You know, we'll yes. kind of switch it uh, between us. Um, so I've, I'm a patron, for example, um, for the tour of Pembrokeshire. Uh-huh which is a one-day cycling uh, sportif um, in, yeah, in my beautiful home county of Pembrokeshire. Yeah, um, yeah. So, you know, that's a, a small example of one of the things that, you know, I was training for it, you know, earlier this year and he gave me plenty of time to, to go out and train for that. And um, he was doing the Cardiff Half Marathon um, in September. So, um, yeah, things that are, are closer to, to home are, I guess, the, some of the things that we're working on at the moment. Yeah. Um, and and appreciating what we've got in in Wales as well, because there's there's loads of areas of Wales that I still haven't had the chance um, to explore. Yes, uh, I suppose it makes you actually look much more local, doesn't it? Because you think I don't actually have the travel time, mm. that extra space that you do on either side. If you actually just think I've got it right here on my doorstep, I'd need to make an adventure out of this this amazing uh, environment around me. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Sque squeezing the adventure into uh, into the time that you've got. Yeah. And you do a lot of uh, speaking and educational talks, uh, a lot uh, to young people that you talked about. You're uh, president of Girl Guiding in Wales, um, as well as various other posts that you have. Uh, what's the main message, like one one sort of encapsulated message that you get like to get across to young people that you speak to? Um, it is the importance of challenging yourself and stepping outside of your comfort zone. But I think the thing that I want to get across, perhaps more than that, but goes hand in hand with it, is developing resilience. Mm. Resilience to setbacks, resilient to perceived failures. Mm. Um, you know, that that is so, so important. Um if you can pick yourself up when things don't go right or when things take, you know, a different and unexpected path, then you'll get to where you want to be. And so in this context, you know, we're talking about so much more than just just the outdoors. Mm. Here. But I but I guess, you know, my message is that the outdoors can give us so much that is then transferable into other areas of our lives. Um, and that's why. You know, three of, of the, the main youth um, organisations that I support, Girl Guiding, the Duke of Edinburgh's Award and British Exploring, do that so brilliantly for young people. Um, and, and yeah, that's why I, I support them all. 
And and what about if you're talking to a group of, I don't know, middle-aged men and women for whom that sort of drive for adventure or that, you know, that youthful exuberance when you're like, yeah, I can do anything. Maybe that's kind of passed them by a little bit already. Uh, what's your... Uh, what what's your message to them is it still that same resilience and uh, and you can do anything sort of thing or a message or um do you, do you adapt that when you're talking to older uh, to adults who aren't necessarily going to go and think about climbing everest in their future or um yeah i mean that's certainly that message is applicable to that audience as well um it, it's to keep keep learning about yourself you know and not to feel that you kind of know everything because I I think I think that's when you perhaps reach a certain stage in your life you, you think you know who you are and yet there's still so much more um to uncover and you know that can be done through um group uh, group conversations and some um well-structured feedback mechanisms within the workplace um but also through uh, outdoor um, activities and out outdoor experiences and experientials uh as well so it's to yeah to remind them of of that really so in a sense yes you do need to challenge yourself sometimes to find out a bit more about yourself but um just to keep keep learning and have that thirst for learning I think yeah um, the important thing yeah that's that's a really uh, a really wonderful message and actually so much of what you've said all the way through relates quite well to mothers who are um, working out their way into you know getting back into movement when you talked about um uh the the sort of the partnership that you have with your husband and and ha how you work together to be able to still do the things that drive you the fact that taking one or two days out and doing something with a girlfriend or going going on a little mini adventure with the, just the two of you brings you back and you're so joyful to see your son and you know helping you to be a better mother by by sort of doing that or um you know, so many of those things are really, really applicable to women in the postnatal years as well. And and that 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 this time in our lives is often a time where we really do learn a lot about ourselves. Mm. You really do learn learn you know how to be curious about oh, this what what this whole new life is teaching us and what we do with our new bodies, <laughs> what we do with our new time constraints and how we work in different ways and um, sort of what we learn a lot about that all the all the way along the way. It's like like you just had mentioned. Absolutely, and and for me, you know, from a fitness side of things, um, it it isn't just about being out on a bike or in, in the hills or at, at the climbing wall. It, I find it a luxury if I can find 45 minutes to do some stretching. Right. In yeah. <laughs> um, which I think since um, maybe for the last four or five years, I've realised that I have to stretch. <laughs> um, yeah, I can't. I can't quite just get up and go out and do things and come back and not really worry about it any longer. Um, yeah, the <laughs> the muscles don't thank me uh, so so much anymore. So um, yeah, and I yeah, if I find that time, then 
yeah, that that can that can make me me feel good as well. Yes, I think that that's a, that's a really good point. That even just trying to find the tiny little bits of time does make you feel feel great that you've done something specifically for yourself. Mm, yeah. Thank you so much, Tori. It's been really fascinating hearing everything about all of the different amazing adventures that you've been on. Hugely inspiring that uh, that you've taken that on. I don't know whether anybody else has been thinking the same thing, but my daughter is uh, nearly 10 and uh, fascinated by all the female adventurers and all the different things that amazing women have done. And I, as you're talking, I'm thinking, gosh, I wonder wonder what her adventure is going to be you know maybe it's not not going to be anything grand and amazing and Everest or the North Pole or anything like that but um, just knowing that there are people like you inspiring the next generation like her and uh, you know mothers like like me and other women who are going to be listening to this podcast who are giving them the support and the structure to be able to be inspired and to have listen to stories like yours is a really uh, really exciting thing as a parent. Yeah, and um, I'm uh, grateful for you mentioned you know fantastic female adventurers at the start of yes. uh, the the podcast. Um, you know, I'm so grateful to to Lily Jew for um, proposing uh, that you know that book to publishers um, because she really did it because of, of the lack of um, publications that focused on uh, women. Mm doing inspiring things in the outdoors so um i'm on obviously uh yeah honored to be part of that book along with um so many other brilliant uh, adventurers in there yeah yeah it's it's a really fantastic one and and uh, my daughter and son were really grateful to um see the presentation at kendall film festival that lily did and sarah outen was there and uh, Mies Bacan was there and uh, a couple of other people so they came out totally awestruck and like oh my gosh that woman she went to the North Pole or, or went around the world or, mummy you read her book it's amazing and I was like yes they are really amazing really amazing and look they're just real people just like you you know which I think is, is a really exciting thing to see the reality Oh, brilliant. And uh, all of those bits and pieces about Tori's adventures and things I will put up in the show notes so you can have good old look around at what Tori does. And if any organisations that you know are relevant to Tori's speaking as well, like schools and um, things like that, then I'm sure you can get in touch with her through her website as well. Thank you so much, Tori. Thank you. Okay, speak to you soon. Bye. Bye. So that's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Do remember to check out the show notes and rate and review the episode. Hop on over to Instagram as well at love underscore movement underscore Sussex to let me know what you think and any comments or feedback you have. I always love to hear from you. Join us next time to hear from a new brilliant guest.